Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Very happy to be with you today. Thank you for tuning in. We are coming today to learn from the Bible on a very hot topic, and that's called the fires of hell. I would like to welcome our panel today. It's good to have you with us, Denise. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Brenton, welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick. I think this is going to be a very interesting sharing time. Lija, it's good to have you with us. Yeah, I feel very excited studying today, as always. Len, thank you for joining. Well, to use the vernacular, we have a hell of a study today. And hello, listeners. Joe, it's good to have you with us, too. Thank you, Nick. It's always a pleasure. Will. It's good to have you back with us. You have a bit of a time out, and I believe you enjoy it. And uh, thank you so much for uh, preparing this uh, study for today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick. It's always good to have a full panel. We're thinking of those who were not able to join us uh, today, but we are inviting you, my dear uh, friend listening today, to be part of this discussion. You know that you can send us a text message or even write an email and uh, maybe comment on what we are talking or uh, if you have some questions, please don't hesitate to address that to the panel and we'll try our best to come with answers from the Bible. Let's uh, begin and uh, Will, over to you. Please take us through. Thank you, Nick. Yes. In a panel, whether in the deeper inquiring talk among friends or in the serious discussions on the world's theological forums, no one seems to escape the questions about what really happens after the grave. Our focus turns to what sort of review awaits us all. Is there an ultimate call to accountability in the afterlife? You know, many religions in the world, Christian and non-Christian, believe in at least two options that lie ahead. Access to paradise or a place of torment for every living person on earth. I can recall as a young, at a young age, that these discussions included scary pictures of the fate of those who are regarded as unfit for the reward of eternal life in heaven. Now, options or opinions, shall I say, <clears throat> about both realms differ very widely too. So in our study today, we'll deal briefly with the popular views of an eternal hell and a cleansing purgatory, with a few biblical remarks on these topics. But... Before we approach it, let's pray. Lydia, would you pray for us? Sure. Almighty God, Father in heaven, we are coming now before you as we are. Please, Father, receive us, forgive us, and bless us. Please grant us to sit in your holy presence where there is love, comfort, and peace. Please, Father, abound with your Holy Spirit's presence as we sink into the fullness of your Holy Word to search for more light, 
meaning, proper understanding, and real truth. According to your promise that you will never leave your chosen ones in darkness, come to our aid as we search about this sensitive topic of what happens after death. Father, according to your promise that you will never leave your chosen ones in darkness, please give us the right insight to understand and not be deceived by the false inventions, theories of the deceiver. Father, we thank you so kindly for hearing us and answering us as you always do. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lydia. You know, on matters of doctrine, the Bible tells us to test all things. Hold fast what is good. That's First Thessalonians 5 and verse 21. Biblical truth can be misinterpreted, and there are multiple voices out there with their own versions on what to believe. Consequently, thousands of people, even whole church denominations, can find themselves on a deceptive path of a false doctrine. Some examples of this sort of doctrine is the, the understanding of the nature of man, that is his body, soul and spirit, as we've been studying, but another, mankind's ultimate destiny. And as proof of this, it's amazing to think that one man, yes, one man influenced the entire Christian world in their understanding of what happens after an individual dies. Len, could you comment on what is popularly proposed about the passage of the soul after death? Yes. I will uh, just give a little illustration before I talk about who this person was. As a child, I lived near the river and I had to learn to swim. And I was always told, that you mustn't go swimming until at least half an hour after you've eaten. And I suppose many of you have been told exactly the same as me. Well, it turns out that that's a bit of an old wives' tale. I don't know where it began, probably by some well-meaning person who uh, mentioned it and then it was picked up by somebody else and somebody else, just like the word sandwich. The word sandwich is in our vernacular now. It's a normal word. And that was uh, all begun in the 1700s because of the Earl of Sandwich. He liked to have a piece of meat or cheese between two bits of bread. And he called it a sandwich. And everybody else who copied him, they uh, they said the same as sandwich. And that word became entrenched. Okay, that's the... Uh, lead up to what I really want to say. This one man that Will mentioned was normally known as Dante. His name was Dante Alahiri, and he took 12 years to write a poem called The Divine Comedy. The poem was based around three things. It was the Inferno, Purgatorio, which we call Purgatory, and Paradisio called Paradise, and this was in that poem. But although it was only a poem and all fiction, Dante's words 
which ended up having a great deal of influence on Christian theology, especially Roman Catholic theology. The basic notion of an immortal soul going to either hell or to purgatory or to paradise is a foundational belief in that church. Many conservative Protestant denominations also believe in an immortal soul that immediately after death descends either to paradise or descends to hell. Indeed, if the human soul never dies, then it has to go somewhere after the body dies. In short, it's really a false understanding of human nature and has led to terrible theological errors. It's interesting that most uh, Christians accept this uh, natural immortality of the soul, um, where an individual who dies, their disembodied soul flies directly to hell or somewhere else. Now, it's interesting, um, Will and panel, that the previous Pope, Pope um, Benedict, the 16th, acknowledged the existence of hell with eternal punishments, and these were his comments. He said it to him, it seemed that the doctrine was so contrary to our ideas about God and about man that it was naturally only accepted with great difficulty. However, he affirmed that the early church fathers believed it. Then he made an interesting statement. He said that it was solidly grounded on the, in the teaching of Jesus. Well, we're going to be looking at that today in our study, so that's one of the things that we will be exploring together, as well as in the apostolic um, writings. But most recently, in uh, 1997, the Catechism made this statement. The teaching of the Church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell, where they suffer the punishment of hell, i.e., eternal fire. Interestingly enough, Will, um, one of our leading Protestant denominations says this, the unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. Hell is a place where the unrighteous undergo, note this, conscious punishment for eternity. This overarching picture of hell serves as the backdrop for or the background for Jesus' teaching about the rich man and Lazarus. Now, those of us who were on the panel and those who were listening would recognise that a couple of weeks ago we dealt with this particular topic, the rich man and Lazarus. And so uh, it's probably good for ourselves and our listeners to do some revision, just check, (laughs) on what was said there, but it's interesting that this um, statement is very common today, Will, and indeed there are um, some theologians theologians who are making the comment that the subject of hell and hellfire should be more prominent in our theology today. As an additional information, I think it's worthy to, to say that this idea of purgatory was adopted officially in the 13th century and um, it appeared about a thousand two hundred years after christ and uh, we know that it was invented by the greeks 
the first place that they use in their own lives over there. It was the first one was the Tartar, which was the place of uh, eternal suffering. The second one was uh, the Limbu, a place of purifying the children. Uh, and the third one was the Purgatorium, where people with not many sins can be received the less punishment and can be purified. So in this way, actually, they wanted to offer to as many people as possible the cleansiness from God in this process and be received by God. So actually, this was their doctrine they, that they invented of the purgatory. It might be worth mentioning that the... Um... The early church leaders, such as Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp, and others, believed that death continued to believe that death was asleep. Taught, and they taught that the wicked are destroyed forever by fire. Their punishment was annihilation. They did not teach an immortal soul to be tortured by fire in hell or for eternity. But it's interesting also that this all this. It was progressive. It began with Plato and, and the idea of the immortal soul. And then it slowly morphed over time. So if a soul is immortal, then what, you know, when people die, some are good people, some are bad people. I'm using this um, very generally. So the good people, then the soul goes to heaven. What do we do with bad souls? Well, there's got to be a place created for them. Well, what about people that were half and half? Not quite right, you know, very repentant, but I think it's just so progressive. And it all started with the, um, because the apostles believed that death was asleep awaiting the resurrection. And it was very gradual, the change. It just morphed over time as people base, based on this error had to develop doctrine to support it. Just one further point I think that's interesting, Joe, you touched on it in what you said. The doctrine actually that uh, we believe from the Bible is called annihilationism. It's a big word, but that's the word that um, is actually used to describe the destruction of the wicked, not in an eternally burning hell, but uh, being destroyed forever. Now, when you read some of these statements by um, theologians as to why the wicked are to burn in eternity, it's to show God's hatred towards sin. I was only reading that this morning and I found that very interesting. But can I just share some good news? The perpetual eternal memorial of God's hatred against sin will be seen every time we see Jesus Christ and we see the nail marks in his hands and feet because yes. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us he made him, that's Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. One of the great texts of scripture. And I believe we need to bear that in mind as we go through our study. The eternal reminder will not be people burning in hell forever. The eternal reminder of sin and God's hatred of sin will be seen in the nail marks and the hands and feet of his dear son who died for us. So this leads me to the question, is this dogma of an eternal, eternally burning hell really based on the teachings of Christ and the apostles, as claimed by Bishop Ratzinger and many other Christian leaders? And from the start, I believe a relevant and foundational question to ask is, does 
Innate immortality exists for anyone, apart from it being a gift by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, can it be right to propose that even the wicked might somehow have built-in immortality to keep them alive through burning forever? In short, does anything, anybody of themselves have inborn immortality? Before you answer, let's think about two texts hinting of little creatures possessing immortality. What light can you shed on this, uh, Joe? Yes, this uh, this text first appeared in Isaiah sixty six twenty four, and it's worth noting that Isaiah sixty six twenty four is uh, um, the last chapter, and it's the last verse of that chapter. So it's the very last thing that Isaiah writes. And Jesus quotes this in Mark, and I'll, I'll read the text. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. Now, at face value, it sounds as those, as these are immortal worms which feast eternally on those who rebelled against God, who continue to suffer indef- indefinitely. And um, and many have taken this text to mean just that. However, if we look at it carefully, it will become obvious that it cannot be saying that for the very thing or saying that very thing. For example, in Scripture, if we were to be consistent, you know, the will not die as a phrase appears. So, I'll give you an example. For instance, um, Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis, bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. Now, obviously, Joseph's brothers did not think that he was promising them immortality. Um, There's another example in Moses, in uh, in Exodus. Um, When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. So here Moses not was not assured that they will be washing with water when entering the tent and the priests would never die. Um, In Jeremiah, Zedekiah says, let no man know about these words and you will not die. So Jeremiah did not take the Zedekiah to mean he would live forever by remaining silent. So clearly the phrase will not die doesn't mean will never die. Conversely, will live forever. Is this a bit long-winded? But it's it's a phrase that's used in Scripture, and if we are to be consistent, and if we're not, then we're trying we're making a mess of it. Um, it's actually saying that it's a not a, we'll never die, but you know it's a very short-term thing. So, what does it mean when it says their worm will never die? Well, I would say that um, worms in this case are maggots. And maggots consume and clean up rotting flesh. It sounds horrible, but that's what they do. It's, 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 um, a form of, of cleansing. The emphasis is that the maggots, and some may feel that worms or maggots might be metaphorical, but they are for destruction or decomposition that takes place. That is, they do not leave their cleansing task incomplete. In other words, they continue to devour the bodies of the wicked the wicked dead, I might add, until their bodies are destroyed. It means that this process cannot be delayed. It cannot be hindered or interfered with in any way or stopped before completion. 
So the worms are not immortal, but finish a work that remains final and unalterable. And this is the lot of those who reject God. In the end, we are either totally saved or totally lost. There's no middle ground. We can either have eternal life or face eternal annihilation. The choice is ours. No one, no creature has immortality, especially worms, except as a salvation gift from God through Jesus Christ. Joe, I think you mentioned uh, yeah, very well that um, in regard to the worms, uh, they are not going to live forever either, but um, they are designed to consume the carcasses, which means that we cannot escape that, even though we may like to think that there is an intermediate place, you know, like uh, purgatory or some other things, you know, to sort out things. Actually, the worm will do its job. Yeah, to finish it up, as you just said. I think that's very important to take that understanding. Yes, there's a song by Hank Williams that states forever is a long, long time. And the recurring years and years of forever are certainly to me far too long for a person to be inextricably bound to a painful existence in flames. Then, at the same time, we also brashly attribute this suffering to the will of the God of our Bibles. Help us here, Denise. When we look at fire as eternal or everlasting uh, in Matthew 18.8 and Matthew 25.41, where it calls it eternal, it implies that the fire will not go out until it fully consumes what is being burned. And there are other texts that refer to um, stubble being burnt um, until everything is burnt up. So once a fire consumes something, then the fire, there's nothing more to burn. So it goes out. Uh, so we can, this means that the eternal fire will only be eternal in the, the sense that it will consume the wicked completely and irreversibly leaving them neither root nor branch, found in Malachi 4.1. But I'd like to read Isaiah 47.14, which talks about this idea of stubble, and it says, Surely they are like stubble, the fire will burn them up. So when we think about the eternal fire, and we think about the word consumes, everything is going to be burned until there's nothing more to burn. Thank you. Uh, you know, when you talk about eternally burning hell, I can think of some serious implications of this doctrine. Uh, Brenton and panel, would you like to share with us why this seems so inconsistent with our understanding of the nature of God as revealed in the Bible? Well, I believe it is um, inconsistent. As I was uh, looking at this um topic earlier on in the day, I looked at a, a text, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, where it says all these things happen to them for examples and they are set out for us upon whom the ends of the world are come. Uh, Paul uses three examples he used in this particular chapter. He talks about how God dealt with mankind in judgment. Um, as I was <laughs> As I was reading what he said there, the question came to mind, <clears throat> for me anyway, along these lines. If the wicked burn forever in hell, 
What is the lesson that God is trying to teach? The whole of the Bible is given for a reason. I believe it's given to show God's love. I believe it's given to show that God is both a God of love and also a God of justice. I cannot for the life of me understand what lesson we would be learning, those of us who are saved and are in paradise, to quote what Glenn said earlier on, how would that help us if we were able to see, as we touched on a couple of weeks ago in The Rich Man and Lazarus, how would it help us to know that our loved ones who have not attained to paradise are suffering in the fires of hell forever and ever? What is the, what is the lesson that it is designed to teach? I don't believe there is a lesson. Um, the, the kindest thing to do is what God is going to do. It's called his strange act will. We know that in the Bible it talks about how God is going to carry out his strange act. His strange act is the destruction of the wicked. It's contrary to his very character, but it's necessary for it to be done. And I think as we think of this particular topic, we talk about the lake of fire and all the rest of it, but um, I just cannot see that there is any further lesson to be learnt. When we're in heaven, we have Jesus. We we have his, as I said earlier, the nail marks in his hands and his feet, which Zechariah 13.6 tells us was received. These wounds were received in the house of my friends. I believe that that's all we ever need throughout eternity is to be able to see Jesus and see what he did for us. And that's what sin did. And that's why we are in heaven, because we have accepted that sacrifice. Yes, I believe that this doctrine of an ever-burning hell is a slur on God's character. Yes. God acts out of love and out of righteousness. He is described as a righteous judge. His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. Take somebody who may not have lived a really horrible, sinful life. We've all sinned, I recognise that. But never, ever chose to accept salvation through Jesus Christ. They would then be classified as the wicked and therefore would be consigned to go and burn for eternity because of the choice that they exercised. I think this is a terrible doctrine. I had a lady approach me one time and she had exactly the same feeling. She belonged to a church which believed in an ever-burning hell and she said, I cannot believe that, although she didn't have good scriptural grounds for her belief. She thought, well, if one of my children didn't accept Christ as their saviour, that means they have to burn in hell forever and ever. And it was abhorrent to her. Yes. And I think a God who imposes a sentence like that on somebody who did not accept his grace is an unrighteous and an unloving God. And it's totally against the picture I have of God in my mind. Yeah, agreed. Panel and um, listener, you may have this um, experience yourself. I certainly I did. When this was used as a teaching tool to teach even children 
If you are not good, if you disobey, you'll burn in hell. You know, sometimes we can put those things up front, not even with a deep meaning, but the Bible doesn't teach about uh, hell. And um, I mean, teach about the hell, which is the second death, which is, as Brenton mentioned, the destruction of the wicked. But we can bring into our faith or daily living some things which we picked up down the track in tradition, in teachings at home or maybe school or church, whatever. We need to be grounded on the word of God and being able to reflect on God's will with us all and God's character. I'd like to read a quote from the book The Great Controversy, page 536. And it says this, and it has um, basically summarizes what we've been talking about. What would be gained to God should we admit that he delights in witnessing unceasing tortures, that he is regaled with the groans and shrieks and imprecations of the suffering creatures whom he holds in the flames of hell? Can these horrid sounds be music in the ear of infinite love, in other words, in God's ears? It is urged that the infliction of endless misery upon the wicked would show God's hatred of sin as an evil, which is ruinous to the peace and order of the universe. Oh, dreadful blasphemy! As if God's hatred of sin is the reason why it is perpetuated. Now, this was mentioned a little bit earlier, that the doctrine of hell is supposed to show God's hatred of sin. But I can tell you right now, God's love for human beings is greater than his hatred of sin. He would never, ever do such a thing to allow sinners to perpetuate, perpetually suffer because they never chose to accept him. Yes, thank you, Len. The avoidance of uh, a burning like this would be absolute part of our nature. You know, millions worldwide welcome the prospect of a second chance. After failing to qualify at first go for something they aspired to, even things like another shot at earning their driver's permit or uh, more seriously, writing again to pass their final school or university exam. As for life itself, Surely anyone would grasp at the bonus opportunity to qualify for a happier end in life's final destiny. So, why should the concept of a second chance of eternal life through a place of purging, a place called purgatory, be such a bad thing? Panel? The Roman Catholic Church holds that the dead who do not deserve hell and are not yet ready for paradise can have their sins purged in purgatory and then ascend from there to paradise. 
Furthermore, their sufferings in purgatory can be reduced by the prayers and penances of loved ones. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is very explicit about purgatory. It says, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. It also states that their suffering can be alleviated by the prayers of their loved ones as well as by other acts on behalf of the dead. It says the church also commends almsgiving or um, donations, indulgences and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. So we respectfully conclude that the dogma of purgatory combines the, this, a pagan notion of an eternally burning hell with the pagan practice of praying for the dead. Would anyone on the panel like to comment on this? It's interesting, Denise, that uh, when you read, um, when you said that, that the church conclude. It's not the Bible said. And this is an important point because sometimes we can come with an understanding or even an idea and promote that one and make it as a, as a norm. I believe we need to be careful when we come across some of, of these sensitive topics to ensure that we can have the background, that we can go in the Bible and search the Bible, what the Bible says in regard to this aspect. Yes, well, this ties in very much with my initial comments today about not going swimming until at least half an hour after one eats. It's just a story that, like Topsy, according to Mark Twain, just growed. I think someone who um, isn't very familiar with the Bible might think, well, what's wrong with the concept of purgatory? After all, it sounds like, you know, that you're given a second chance and, um, you know, that if you didn't have an opportunity in this life, well, then you could make amends in purgatory. Furthermore, it's not just you, but other people could help you along by donations, by building a school or a hospital, you know, or praying or doing penance or whatever it might be. Now, um, I think it's been brought up time and time again. The problem with this is there are no second chances because it is appointed for us to die and then face the judgment. There is no second chance. And not only that, that once that once I'm dead, nothing can change that record. No amount of praying or donate donation giving, no amount of building works in for in on the name of God with plaques with saying my name on there is going to change anything. It is final. This is giving people a false hope that they can somehow uh, cruise along, coast along, not making a decision way or one way or another, thinking that at some point after their death, it could be made for them or they could be cleansed and made right with God. The point is that there is nothing. Once death takes place, the books are closed. Just to add to what Joe said, uh, Will, I'd like to share Ecclesiastes 9, 5 and 6. For the living know that they will die but the dead know 
nothing. Now, that's that's point one, but the second part is, and they have no more reward. That's the very next words. They have no more reward, for the memory of them has forgotten. So as Joe said, praying for the dead is going to make no difference because as time goes on, even our loved ones are erased from our memory. And then it says their love, their hatred and their envy have now perished. Never more will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Those two verses preclude the idea of a purgatory. We have this life, as Joe quite rightly stated, this life in which to give our hearts and our lives to the Lord. After that, what's left is um, the eternal rewards that we're talking about. Either we uh, are ready to meet the Lord or we're not. Is that not interesting that uh, people are more happy to do good things and more things for the people after they died than they do in their lifetime? I just said it's pointless. What you're saying is right. It's pointless. Panel members, uh, I wonder if you could give us some quick responses about your, 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 uh, how you relate to the biblical teaching compared to purgatory, um, or the passage of people after death. Well, Will, on Tuesday, I actually uh, performed a, a funeral down here at Mount Gambia. And because it was a person who loved the Lord and believed what the Bible taught on the subject of the resurrection, we were able to assure those who came to pay their respects that um, the next thing she will know was when Jesus calls her to life again. And we were able to not only share that as a promise, but we, I was able to also use that as a challenge to those who may have not know Jesus and may not know him to say to them, if you want to see her again and the resurrection day, Christ is calling you now to make a decision to follow him so that you can be present on that wonderful resurrection day to meet Noreen again. And uh, it was a very powerful challenge that um, people spoke afterwards of how it had really challenged them in thinking about their relationship with the Lord. I think this uh, subject that we're dealing with today also is very important for us to understand that this life is the only life in which we can be right with the Lord. So tell me in short, panel members, why this dogma of uh, purgatory uh, seems incompatible with biblical teachings concerning the passage of people after death. We can read in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge, nor wisdom. So it means, according to this text, it means that the dead remain resting unconsciously in the grave. And also it's um, very important to know that, um, you know, the righteousness of someone cannot be transferred, you know, to another person. And I'm um, going to read a passage in um, Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse twenty. And up to 22, it says here, the soul who sin shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked 
shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has commanded, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. I think this is a very important passage. And if I could go a bit further in Jeremiah chapter 15 and uh, verse 1, it says this. Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to these people. You see, he is using uh, two characters, Moses being known that he's in heaven, but Samuel is in the grave. I mean, even if they come before the Lord, God will continue to carry on with his plans. That's not anything transferable or uh, mediating, you know, as we talked before, uh, if people are somewhere uh, in the purgatory or in a, other places that we can um, intercede for them. Yes, we can intercede for people while they are alive. We can pray for people that they may come to the full understanding of the truth of God. If I was to pray for my grandfather, who <clears throat> I may have thought was in purgatory, in effect, what am I doing? I am taking the position as being mediator. At the same time, I am taking a position where I want to alter God's judgment. So for us as human beings to pray for the dead is assuming that position that we can uh, move them up to have eternal life. However, that practice, of course, is not biblical. In First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, is this statement, and it's a statement that we should all remember. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and then it names who that mediator is. It's not Len, it's not Brenton, it's not Bill, Mary, or Catherine, it's the mediator is Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all men and so on. So to actually do this is assuming something more than we should. I find there's another problem. I know in the Catholic Church it's not spoken about a great deal, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, has been elevated to be mediator. She's called the mediatrix. But remember First Timothy two five, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Hmm. We should never ever assume that we can mediate for the dead. Yes, for the live we can pray for them and help them on their way to becoming one of God's children, but it's too late for the dead. 
death is followed by the final judgment. So without any second chance, and I'll read from Hebrews 9.27, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So there is no coming back, not in any form, to have another go. Um, when Once death occurs, game over. Well, there's an interesting uh, statement here, and it has very significant implications. I think that the uh, anti-biblical theory of purgatory distorts God's character. Here's the statement that I found particularly interesting. Satan's work since his fall is to misinterpret our Heavenly Father. He suggested the dogma of the immortality of the soul. The idea of an eternally burning hell was the production of Satan. Purgatory is his invention. These teachings falsify the character of God, that he shall be regarded as severe, revengeful, arbitrary, and not exercising forgiveness. So instead of a dead being, the dead being asleep awaiting Christ's return, they're in purgatory suffering. And I think, Will, he's done a very good job on that because so many Christians today believe it. Uh, but it's totally at odds with what Jesus came to show God as being like. Jesus came to show that God was a God of love. You're absolutely right, ben, Brenton, um, but it's not the only way that it distorts God's character. Um, the idea, the idea of purgatory, you know, God cannot be bribed to overlook overlook certain things because of a sizable donation or the pilgrimage of another. It is like offering to bribe a judge, and a judge who accepts a bribe is considered corrupt, isn't he? Mm -hmm. So, and this, you know, how would this be seen in our world if we could bribe God into, you know, blotting out certain things? And nor can a church or another confer forgiveness on or absolution of another. So, you know, it's making God look like he needs money, he needs buildings, um, and so he's willing to overlook things as a special favour for certain people. And that's not God. That is God is not corrupt. Yes. Brenton? Well, I think there's another point, and thanks, Joe, for putting that in. There's another point that I see here that's interesting. Satan um, has been giving the impression ever since he was cast out of heaven that this, this was unjust and unfair. Now, by portraying God as being this particular type of God, he's saying, well, if you're going to be consistent, you have to treat those the same way you treated me. What we've got to remember is that Satan, or Lucifer, as he was known, actually stood next to God's throne. He understood more about God than we will ever do. And by portraying God as vengeful, uh, a tyrant, and all the rest of it, he's actually showing people his own characteristics, Satan's characteristics. But he's he's hinting that, that that's what God is like. And I think that... Um, Christ's sacrifice on Calvary overcame that particular issue when he made the comment, it is finished. People could actually see God's character as revealed through Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. Thank you, yes. With reference to the teaching of the natural immortality of the soul, let's ask, why is extended life after death only limited to those who are in Christ? 
Len? Well, we have in First John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, this statement, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and in this life is his Son. And then we have this very powerful and important statement. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, if that's not clear, I don't know what is. There is no halfway thing here. It's either if you belong to Jesus, then you have eternal life, and if you don't, you don't. Simple as that. And with regard to immortality, we're told in First Timothy chapter 6 that God alone has immortality. So we can't assume that uh, people are in hell crying out or people are in purgatory supposedly getting better. Mm. After tidying up a gravesite uh, of a family member in Robe, the Robe Cemetery in south the southeast earlier this week, we passed through the old historic cemetery with gravestones showing burials back to 1850. One row of graves had the same surname, clearly the same family, the Brennan family. But the dates of their deaths on the little stones caught our attention. These all died in August 1875. Not by accident on the same day, though. Ten-year-old Michael on the 22nd, eight-year-old John on the following day, the 23rd, 11-year-old Alice four days later on the 27th, three-month-old Catherine on the next day, the 28th, 13-year-old Margaret on the next day, the 29th, of August 1875. Then little James died within five years, and mother and father died soon after. Now picture it, year in a row, lie a family of eight, and I cannot imagine the grief that surrounded the family and relatives of that time, way back in August 1875, nearly a century and a half ago. What was the cause? I couldn't find out. No doubt amidst the devastating grief at the time, some mention might have been made at their funerals that they were ushered into heaven after their untimely deaths, now alive and well in the presence of Jesus. And I'm sure that these words brought comfort to those who were left behind. It's difficult to be told otherwise. And I think we need to be tender-hearted enough to deal gently with those of differing convictions. Still, the truth of God's word needs to be shared in a sensitive way, but there is, to me, something equally as comforting in our Bibles, the teaching that they are sleeping peacefully in their graves, in that old cemetery, oblivious of the present conflicts and heartaches here on earth. Instead, 
They lie there, awaiting the resurrection day. Then, and think of it, then all together, that family, on the same day, will receive what the Lord has installed, has in store for each one of them. You know, panel and listener, I want to just encourage you to keep faith, follow truth, share hope, because we know soon Jesus will come and make all things right again. Then can I invite you to pray? Yes, let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, we'd like to thank you for your word, which is truth. We know that there are many stories, fables, ideas circulating in the world, particularly about what happens when somebody dies. But we are constrained to believe what is in your word. We pray too that those who are listening will have that same constraint that in your word is truth. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider this subject, that we'll remember that um, there is no burning hell as is taught and uh, that there is no purgatory as is also taught. When people die, they lose consciousness and if they've been faithful, when Jesus returns, they'll be raised again to eternal life. This is our hope, and we pray that's the hope for everyone who's listening today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for your participation today. This um, topic, it's quite uh, uh, something to, uh, you know, to ponder on. And no wonder that the enemy, the devil, Satan, is doing everything what he can to distract our attention from the truth, from the reality. Because God wants us to know today that if we turn to him, it's our time, it's our day to put it right with God. There is no such another time like in purgatory or other places. We are inviting you to join us again next week because we are going to learn a little bit more about end time deceptions and what the enemy has in store to deceive as many people as possible. Please come back and until then, may God richly bless you and have a safe walk in the footsteps of Jesus. If you've ever wondered When you pray at night If it makes a difference If it sets things right Every time you say your prayers Whispered in the dark Somewhere deep inside you just know with all your heart As sure as God's in heaven There's someone who cares And somebody's listening When you say your prayers 
prayer can be a wish A prayer can say I'm sorry Like a hug or like a kiss It doesn't have to be just right God hears you loud and clear As long as it comes from your heart It goes right to His ears As sure as God's in heaven There's someone who cares And somebody's listening When you say your prayers Just know somebody's listening when you say your prayers.